Hey everyone, it's Mark, and this is Article Club, where this month we're discussing The Key by Brian Broom. It's not a secret to anybody, really, that I love Mr. Broom's writing, and his book, Punch Me Up to the Gods, where the key comes from, well, it's outstanding, and you should get it immediately, and you should read it, and then we should talk about it. But before all that, I want to share this conversation that I had with Mr. Broom a couple weeks ago. As usual, he's thoughtful and honest and just an overall good person. I hope that you like the interview as much as I did. And here it is. Brian Broom, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to actually finally meet you and, uh, and talk to you. Yeah, last time we talked, I think it was just on the phone to talk about 79. Is that right? Two or three years ago. Yeah, it was a while ago. You know, I was amazed that I was like, oh my God, somebody wants to talk to me about something I wrote. Oh my goodness. It was probably one of the first times that that had happened to me. And then you told me that you were it was in, involved in your book club or you were teaching it or something like that. And I was just like, wow, I am super famous. But no, I was I was flattered and honored and I'm, I'm happy to be here. I mean, you joke about being famous, but the last two or three years, like, I don't know. I mean, isn't it different the last couple, two or three years? How do you feel from then to now about just how your work is being received? Well, from then to now, I'm trying to think about how I remember, remember then. Like then I was just glad to write something. I was glad that somebody paid me money for something that I wrote, you know, 79. I still love 79, you know, but I was, I was just so happy. And I thought, well, this is great. Like I have, you know, you know, it's a small book. It's a, a, what they call a chap book, but I was extremely happy then. And I had no idea, you know, that something bigger uh, was coming. Like I literally had uh, no idea. So I, um, from then to now, as far as the work is concerned, I, I think that I want to get bigger, you know, maybe explore some broader subjects or maybe stick with the same subject matter and just tell it in different ways. But I feel like I can do more, hmm. you know, I feel like I want to try more. I want to try maybe writing a piece of fiction or, or do some journalism. Like I, I feel like the writing is going to uh, be the writing, you know, but I feel like I can, I have leeway now to try some different kinds of things. First of all, I love 79 and I love this book. Uh, one of the biggest things that I see as the difference is like, you're mostly an observer in 79 um, on the bus. And then you're observing everything that's around you. And then obviously here, you're the main character and punch me up to the gods. You know, people probably are asking you about how it feels to write so personally. Was that a major challenge for you? Or because you have been writing on Facebook and just like with the moth and everything, did it sort of come naturally? Well, I mean, the Punch Me Up to the Gods obviously gets more personal than, you know, a lot of stuff or most stuff than the I've written. But, you know, it's a weird thing. I, I honestly sometimes feel like I don't believe that anybody's going to read anything that I write anyway. So that was the process with Punch Me Up to the Gods. I would put down something that was extremely personal or embarrassing or unflattering to myself. And then I'd be like, oh, maybe I should take that out. That's a little too much. But then I'd be like, nobody's going to read it anyway. So you may as well, you know, just put it on the page. But then I found that putting those things on the page actually kind of lifted my burden a little bit. It felt like well, geez, this is honest, but it's just, a, it's a tar terrible, like sort of secret that's been weighing me down for, you know, for a very long time. So putting it on the page sometimes just helped me personally, 
you know, and then, you know, the day before publication, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I should take all of this shit out. Like I have to take all of it out. But what's really gratifying is that after, you know, Punch Me Up to the Gods came out, I heard from a lot of people, you know, to my surprise, I am not the only one who has endured these kinds of embarrassments or who has felt these kinds of, you know, unsavory feeling like jealousy and, you know, and, and being a liar and, you know, all these things, you know, it's interesting. There's a story in the book about Luther Vandross and, you know, my, my mother's sort of reaction to him and my reaction to him as well. And I actually had a man write to me and say that exact same thing happened to me. I couldn't believe it. You know, I was like, really? He was like, yeah. And he's a straight, he was a straight man. And he was like, I really liked Luther Vandross. And my parents told me I couldn't, you know, he was like the, that all the, well, it wasn't exact same thing, but it almost the exact same thing around the same, you know, public figure. I, I had, there's a story called the red caboose uh, in there as well. And I had somebody reach out to me and say, that exact same scenario happened to me only instead of my with my mother it happened with my father you know so in putting those things out there you know you you do render yourself vulnerable but it's also an opportunity to recognize that you're not alone as well you know i thought i had oh my god i had endured all these hardships and the woe is me but it's you know a lot of people experience the same thing and I was also surprised that so many different kinds of people were telling me these things, you know, white women, you know, saying I felt the same way and, and black women saying, oh, this happened to me too. And this story about colorism, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was, it was, it was hard to do, but there are rewards, you know? Yeah. Thank you for that. Because I didn't know which story to choose because I related just so strongly. Similarly, like, oh, this has happened to me, even though, you know, I'm white and all that. But like, yeah, we, I was deciding between B and the red caboose. I'm looking through the book right now, this gay life and like, I could have chosen, you know, a lot of them, mm -hmm. but, but I just, I finally landed on the key just because there's just so much going on. And so if it's okay, I would love to just talk a little bit about the key. First, how you situate it in the book. So you, you have the famous poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, and then you decide to put the key in the we strike straight part. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, the, the, the poem, Gwendolyn Brooks poem is, you know, first of all, a really great poem. I, you know, discovered it late. And I was like, this has to be a part of, of, of my book. But, you know, in a few lines, she sort of sums up these rites of passage for, you know, Black men. And, you know, the story is that she was walking by a pool hall, like, you know, really sort of early in the day, you know, when kids were supposed to be at school. And she looked inside and there were seven, you know, basically boys inside this pool hall, you know, doing very, you know, manly things right? And playing pool and et cetera. And the we strike straight line in the poem, I believe is just a reference to, to playing pool, you know, and being the best at pool, which I sort of then extrapolated on. I'm like, well, this is sports, you know, and I was horrible at sports. And then I use it again as a sort of metaphor for 
you know, trying to be heterosexual. But that's why I chose to put it under there because my experience with, you know, basketball or any sport for that matter was just an unmitigated disaster. And so that's why I decided to put it in that, under that heading. And then also though, it's striking, striking straight for the sports, but also you begin the piece in the bar and, and in the gay bar as well with Bertrand. Yes. Which, which I have to say was intense from the, like the second line, like the first or the <laughs> second line, it gets right into it. And, you know, I'm gay and I've been in gay bars, but I have not been hit on in the same exact fashion as you <laughs> describe it in this piece. Can you take us, I mean, immediately he says, you must play basketball. Yes. And you, it seems like you're enamored a little bit because, you know, he's got these eyes and, you know, he has a, a sophistication and he's from Europe, I guess. But, but also you say that you're afraid right at the beginning when he says you must play back. Can you like say more about that? Yeah, because, because he approached me that way, you know, first of all, he was beautiful. Like, and I was immediately... My, my first thought was, okay, he's clearly making a mistake, you know, by even talking to me, he must be drunk or high or whatever. When it, when it was clear to me that he wasn't crazy, I was like, well, you know, there's only one reason that he is approaching me. You know, it's the whole BBD thing, you know, <laughs> big black dick, like athletic, this sort of like, you know, at the time, like Michael Jordan, you know, fantasy. I had been there before. You know, he wasn't the first person to want me to be, you know, some sort of athletic fantasy. So I thought, well, if I don't play along, you know, and also remember that I, I really thought I should have been these things at the time. So I thought if I don't, if I don't play along, you know, then he's not going to like me, you know, and he's beautiful and he's sophisticated and he's smart, obviously, and so I need to be what he wants me to be. So, you know, I just went into an act of pretending that I had been doing pretty much all my life, you know, in one way or another. So, yeah, I was scared that he was going to just turn around and be like, if, you know, if you don't play basketball, I'm not remotely interested in you. There Because there was no other reason in my mind that he would have been interested in talking to me. You sort of were aware, obviously, because it wasn't your first time. But at that point, because this piece is also about the body and like your body, like at that time. So you had this idea, obviously, that he was going to be attracted to the notion. But like at that time, did you feel confident in your body at that time? Because in the basketball court later on, you're not. No, I did not feel confident in my body. Like I had been told that it was, you know, I was young, I, you know, I, you know, I had been told that I had a good body, but that wasn't enough. You know, my body had to be athletic and it had to be graceful and it had to be able to do these amazing things like, you know, like black sports gods bodies do. So, you know, I, I know, and I was, I had already been convinced that I was ugly from like an early age. So I was just desperate for somebody beautiful to like me because that meant acceptance. That meant that I was beautiful too. So I wasn't confident in my body. I just lied like a, you know, like a bare skin rug. You know, I just, I, I think I started lying and I didn't, didn't really think it would ever come to anything, you know, but it did in a spectacularly bad 
fashion. So no, I wasn't confident that, that, you know, in my body at all. It was all about what other people said. It was all about what other people told me I was. Yeah, the lie, the lie also is pretty spectacular. It's almost, <laughs> it's almost like a movie. It's like such a performance, you know, <laughs> yeah. almost like an, almost like an outlandish. And then so was his response too about the racism. Yeah, the racism. It's, I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. You know, it's like, it, it, like so many parts of the book too. It's sort of like this happened, but did it really happen? Like it's oh, like, yeah. yeah. He was, he was convinced. You know, and I think back, like he was convinced that he was so sensitive to race and so race forward. And, you know, he, I remember him talking a lot of shit on like Americans, you know, he'd be like Americans, they, they do not know the racism. And, you know, he had, he had been, you know, growing up in Europe reading about American racism. And he was like, the Americans, they are so stupid, you know, but he was, he was definitely uh, racist, you know, but just in this different way that he didn't ever seem to recognize as racism. It's like objective, objectifying, you know, sexualizing racism. And, you know, over the course of the time that we spent together, he said some ridiculously racist things you know that didn't make it into the book but I remember now you know knowing what I know now and looking back at him he was not as progressive you know as he seemed to think he was well this is the this is the thing also is like he doesn't want you to exoticize him right which makes you feel dumb instead of like anger you know what I mean like what what he doesn't want from like he does to you yeah which is absolutely insane um, yeah i did not recognize that at the time he was like all the americans they, <laughs> they they treat me like exotic and i was like oh that's a shame and then i you know and he said i remember he said exoticize and i felt really dumb because i didn't know what that word meant and throughout the course of the time that we spent together i it never dawned on me oh you know he's doing the same thing to me like that he complained about the first time that we met never dawned on me once. Yeah. I mean, obviously like now we can reflect back and he, like a lot of white people are, is trying to be like the good white person. Did it help that he was European? Like for, do you know what I mean? Like, so if if this has happened to you many times for you at that time, because of the sophistication, was he like, not like another white person because like he had an extra vocabulary and like he lived in France or whatever? You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I think that, and this, I'm going to sound so shallow right now, but I think that just because he was so like good looking, I felt like he was a better person. You know, I think we do that a lot with people who are good looking. We automatically assume that they, that their emotions are more, impo- they're more important somehow, you know, you know, we get that a lot through our culture, you know, through television and, 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 and film and, and, you know, print media, that good looking people are the most important people. And I bought that hook, line and sinker. Like, so because he was just this, you know, I actually stalked him a few weeks ago. I was like, I wonder if I could see what he's like up to. So I like typed his name into Google, <laughs> like a complete maniac. He's still, he's still good looking. But uh, I think it was because just he was so striking and we were in you know, a bar um, full of men and he chose me. And that made me feel like so 
outsized special that I was like, I can't lose this feeling. You know, I want to be him. I want to be part of him. And, you know, I look back and recognize how crazy that was. But I mean, we all know how looks driven gay culture can be. And yeah, I was I was definitely uh, that guy. Like I wanted a good looking boyfriend because that meant that I was a good person or a better person. Yeah. And so ultimately you're looking at the exit, but then you continue with the lie and you know that you're like what the next step is to go to his apartment. But before we go to the flashback, the one thing is that in addition to him being beautiful and everything, he also, and you, and you note this right from the beginning is that he has a prosthetic, which like, I feel, you know, as a reader, I was like, oh, that's not just an important detail for what happened, but obviously about like, you know, what you're trying to say too. I guess it's just a, a basic question about the prosthetic, but yeah, why did you include it and what is it trying to do in the piece? That's a good question. I, you know, when I, when I, cause I could have, you know, the thing about it was like, okay, I, I, I wrestled with whether or not to put that in there because obviously it's a really identifying detail as to who this person is. You know, like if he read this, I don't know if he has, he would know exactly, you know, who I'm talking about. But I had been, you know, and you have to sort of think about who you were at the time. And in, in, in all of these, all of these pieces, like I try to write as who I was at the time. I think at that time, if he had just been some guy, you know, who approached me and had a leg missing it would have freaked me out and I would have rebuffed them or I would have you know not at least not gone but it was with him it was merely incidental you know it was something that could easily have been easily been overlooked because of what I wanted from him you know but you know metaphorically speaking you know there's a there's a piece of him missing you know that I just I chose to ignore. And I also chose to ignore his racism because of who he was, you know, to me. And then obviously, you know, we went and got into bed and it wasn't a big deal. But in that moment, I, you know, when I think back, I was like, I would have, I would have uh, not gone home with just some guy who was, you know, missing most of his leg. Like, this is how important it was to me to be, to have proximity to beauty, but in a missing piece. And then there's a missing piece of his sort of like, you know, interest in me as well. So those two things kind of like lined up and that's why I decided to put it in the piece. Yeah. If that makes any sense at all. No, it does. Because like in your work, I feel like in your writing, you also are honest about what you want from the situation. So even though all this stuff is happening to you and it's very raw, like you're aware also, and at least I am too, as the reader, like you want something too. And you, and you do, you make choices as well about what you let go and all that too. So yeah, thank you for Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. You write so hilariously, even though it's painful about sports and basketball and <sighs> Let me tell you, like when you go into the phys ed, we call it PE out here. Basically how, how you described like not being part of the game, sort <laughs> of like going really slowly, not oh. what, like, even though I was sort of okay at sport, I was totally there, but this wasn't just one time for you. This was like your childhood. 
Oh yeah. And, and especially like, you know, you, you speak very frankly too about like, you know, being a black boy and then being under the gaze of other black boys. So there's a lot of pain in all of the scenes, but specifically like that scene and in the locker room as well. How do you deal with like humor and pain in that scene and also in your writing? Well, I mean, I think everybody has, you know, moments or moments that they look back on that were excruciating at the time. <laughs> but you look back and you're like, that actually was kind of funny. So again, what I what I do, like when I'm writing something is I try to get into the emotion of what I was feeling at the time. And then I just kind of free write, like, oh my God, it was excruciating. And then, you know, I sound really like emo when I write the, you know, the, the painful parts. And then I do another take on it, which was like, okay, what was actually funny? Like just to, like there's physical comedy there, you know, that you have to take advantage of, you know, it's almost keystone cop comedy, you know, so, so write that part too. And then just kind of smoosh them together. <laughs> You know, because, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, and, and you, know, you think about it, those moments are really great because you get to feel, you know, in retrospect, because you get to feel two things at once, you know, like that cringy, oh, if you can't help but laugh, you know, you know, like the church laugh, when, you know, when you start laughing in church and you can't stop and somebody keeps telling you to stop and the more they tell you to stop, the more you laugh, you know, like that to me is a great physical feeling like this with these two things battling against each other. So, I mean, when some, some things are just painful, you know, and there's no comic spin that you can put on it. And some things are just funny, but, you know, in those moments, you know, at my advanced age, you know, I can look back and I can, I can laugh. So I, I want to bring the reader in with me. Like, come on, it's not so bad. You can laugh at this. Come on. You know, you want to laugh with me, you know? Yeah, the basketball scene, I, I was laughing, even though it was deep. You talk about the body again, shirts and skins. That's throughout the entire piece. You say that your the your body was a bully, mm. which is interesting because it's in a scene about bullying, but yeah. that your body is a bully. And then also you say that your body swished, which is positive in basketball. Like we want things to... Like we, <laughs> But for you, your body swished. I don't know, like that's intense. And I was laughing though, until we got to the locker room scene. That's when it gets really serious too, because it also gets to like what you're noticing and not wanting to notice about like your body and your attraction and not wanting to look all of a sudden it's not funny. Like it was yeah. not, it was not funny. Like those scenes hopefully don't exist anymore. But when we were growing up, they did. And they're just such horrible places of pain, whether or not like you're questioning or whatever, you know, mm. like, because your whole thing is like, you're talking about masculinity, you're talking about sexuality and the intersection. But like, and, and in one point you talk about like, they don't have any rules here. Like, it's almost like Mr. Seifert or whatever his name was. Like, it was almost like the whole institution was here to torment. Yeah, that's what it, that's exactly what it, what it felt like. You know, I remember, you know, I think we had, I can't remember whether we had gym every day or like three times a week or like something like that. But I remember when that bell would ring and it was time to go to gym class like on a daily or semi-daily basis, everything in my body would just collapse. 
you know, it was like being sent to the galleys every day for me for, you know, however long, you know, Jim was. And, you know, Mr. Seifert was, you know, the king of this sort of like torture chamber and all the other boys were his minions, you know. They took their notes a lot of times from him, you know, because he couldn't, he, he openly laughed at me sometimes. And, you know, the other boys were like, well, you know, then it must be okay. But you talk about the black boy gaze. It's a tremendous gaze to be under, you know, because, you know, because of racism, I think that oftentimes black people start to believe that we are somehow responsible for each other. That this black person's bad deed, you know, somehow reflects on me. You know, it is one of the many, many things that white supremacy in this country has done to make us feel like we're responsible for each other. It keeps us all in check. And one of those things was this idea of masculinity. If one of us was acting like a sissy, you know, then all of us were acting like a sissy. And so therefore you have to, you know, stomp the sissy out or at least make it clear that you have no, you, you hate him too. You know, because they didn't want, it felt like they didn't want the white boys to think the black boys were soft and I was the soft one. So therefore I had to be ostracized, isolated, and, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, tortured to make it clear that I was not a part of, I was not a part of black boy culture. Like, you know, they all had it, had it down. You know, I went to a school where, you know, I think if, if you were a black boy, education was not focused on, you know you were there to play sports and win for the, you know, the Vikings. And that's what it felt like. And, you know, my brother was very good at playing sports and winning for the Vikings. He's also really smart too, but that didn't matter, you know, and that, you know, I, I just felt trapped. I felt trapped all the time. It's almost like they, the other black boys, you know, who feel responsible. It's, it's like a script almost. It's um, it's like it's not like that they're necessarily like thinking to like try to squash you out or to hurt you, but it almost happens automatically in in some ways. In the final and horrific scene, obviously on the bus, where you basically this guy challenges you, it's almost like it's inevitable that this is going to happen. You know, people could ask, "Oh, why didn't you fight back?" Or why didn't your brother, you know, fight back? Or whatever. But like, it's like, that is what happened because it happened, but it's almost like that's inevitable um, that it's going to happen. So what was happening for you in that moment? Yeah, yeah. What's interesting, I think, about that story is what happened, you know, about a couple months ago when my brother called me. And he didn't say directly that he had read the book. My brother has a thousand children now and he's you know very busy and you know and he's also a very religious man so you know there are places where we diverge right but he called me and he wanted me to know oh no he didn't call me this is what happened he sent me a text i never get texts from my brother he's not a texter he texts me and he was like i'm about to write you something please hold on it's going to take a long time and i was like oh shit you know, I do not know what this is going to be about. So, you know, it did take a long time. Like, you know, an hour and a half later, we had this long text where he pretty much says, like, look, you know, I was going through the same thing. I was, you know, my brother was in his own 
sort of battle with this idea of black masculinity. He was trying to keep, even though he was a sports star and he had, you know, a lot of girlfriends and he was popular, he was also trying to keep his head above water on this masculinity piece, you know? So he said, I'm sorry, but he didn't say it was specifically for anything, you know, but I think that there were times where he didn't come to my aid because he was trying to, he was trying to save himself, you know, that's how powerful it was uh, and still is to some extent. But, you know, again, he didn't, he would never admit to reading my book, but I think that maybe he got wind of it or maybe he did read it, but it was interesting for me to hear that he was going through the same, through the same thing. Yeah, because I could feel on the bus how much you wanted him to help you out and then mm. how much he felt like he couldn't as well. Yeah. I don't have as much uh, sympathy for the this Glenn guy, but maybe he's going through some pain as well, but you know, <laughs> probably not. Um, the last two scenes, though, both on the bus, as well as with Bertrand, where you perform basketball for him, <laughs> like the, the line saying, like, you thought you were going to play with him, but you're like, yeah. no, you're going to play yeah. for him. Yeah. Like, I was trying to figure out how they're similar because they are. And for me, like the first word that came to me is the is humiliation. So you do this whole thing where you're playing basketball and the basketball becomes personified. And it is like, it is your bully. You think the basketball is going to behave and then it doesn't, but you keep going. And then after that, you go to the Korean restaurant and like you still like strangely to me even like, and I can keep (laughs) on going too, but like it's, do you, did you still have hope that somehow? Oh yeah. I still had hope. Like, you know, on some level too, like, you know, I say in the in the piece, like I, I really strongly believed that this sort of black basketball playing gene would like spring to life under duress. You know how X-Men like they they have to undergo some sort of stress for their powers to, you know, to come into effect. Like that's what I felt, you know, like maybe if put, if enough pressure, if this beautiful man puts enough pressure on me, like my ability to play basketball will spring to life. And while I was performing basketball for him, I, I honestly didn't know that I looked as ridiculous as I did. Like, I honestly didn't like, you know, it was only kind of like after when I saw the horror, you know, on his face, the, just the utter thorough disappointment and embarrassment on his face that it, you know, it dawned on me like, oh God, I must've looked ridiculous, you know? But then, you know, even though he was crestfallen, even though he was just like, oh, I could, I could tell that he just didn't want to be around me anymore. I still went to the Korean place with him and still was trying to, to re-keep him, to try to bring him back in, you know. He never talked to me again after that. I was still trying to, but, but the interesting thing for me at the end when he left, is that I started drinking like immediately, you know, I went straight to the bar and I sat there for a long time and I got drunk. And then I went down to the clubs later that night. I mean, you know, how symbolic, you know, I couldn't be this thing that this guy wanted me to be. And so now I'm going to go out and just destroy myself. Mm -hmm. And that led me, that was a pattern, you know, for me for Mm -hmm. a very, very long time. Yeah. You go out to destroy yourself after that, but then back after the bus 
you decide to destroy in the last scene, you decide to destroy a worm. And you also say, I had to tell myself the truth. Why then do you feel? You know, why then? I I just, that's a good question. That's probably one for my therapist. In that moment, like, you know, I had worm guts on my hands and I was sort of like wanting that worm. It was the only power that I had, you know, in that moment was to was to destroy something that was smaller than me and couldn't defend itself. But I think after Glenn, Glenn's exposing me like that, you know, it had just all come to a head. And, and you know, and when my brother didn't defend me, I was like, well, just literally nobody wants me, you know. And I, I guess it was just one of those childhood like epiphanies, you know, for right or wrong. I was like, well it's just time to be this pariah now, you know? And that's kind of, I think that's in that moment, I just was like, well, you know, what are you going to do about this? You know, I recognized it myself, but I still, you know, of course for much longer after that, just continued to hide it, but that I was, that I was gay. Well, that's the thing though. You just said, you know, you basically accepted your pariahness, not like, not that necessarily this was a coming outness. Um, no. Yeah, that's interesting because like, you know, not to go too much into me, but like I've heard that sometimes with coming out, it's almost sort of like there's a coming out when it becomes more painful not to come out. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that this was your moment of coming out, but like, no, it's a di- it's like to accept. So can you say what are you truly accepting in at the end of this chapter? At the end of that chapter, I am accepting that I am, you know, useless, gay, not necessarily in that order, you know, that I am a mistake, you know, I'm not coming out in that, in that moment. I am, I'm coming out to myself as something that is false. You know, I am accepting things that aren't true. That's why, you know, the worm ends up crushed in my hands because I am, I want to, I want to hurt somebody. And, you know, I, I am too, still too, I'm too timid to try to hurt other people. I don't think I have the power to do that in that moment. So why not the worm? Yeah, I just, I, I, I accepted that, you know, I'm probably going to die either by somebody else's hand or my own. I just accepted all the horrible stereotypes about gayness in that moment, sitting on my, you know, my family's, the steps of my family's house. And then every day after that was just really difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, and I found ways to feel better in quotes, you know, when I, as soon as I found, you know, drugs and alcohol, I was like, well, this is what I've been missing. You know, this is what, this is what it's all about. This is how I can feel better. So, yeah, I think that all began on those steps. Mm-hmm. It just seems so intensely grim, but there was an acceptance because this book, the whole book is dedicated in some ways to Twan, like what sort of message are you then sending to him at the end of of this uh, at the end of the key well the book the whole message to him is a, is you know a, a different message than the message at the end of the key i think the message at the end of the key is just how low other people can drag you down you know if you give them too much power over you you know Mr. Seifert, the boys in the gym class, my brother, even though maybe unintentionally, you know, just how low they can bring you when you, I don't want to sound like an after-school special, you know, don't believe in yourself, you know, or 
or you just start to believe the the the, the bullshit they 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 feed you right all of these things all of these ways in which people torture you and bully you because of who you are you know are simply ways for them to make themselves feel like they belong more you know it's a zero sum game with these people you know you cannot belong in the in, in the way that you are and i and me the way that i am in this tiny little you know you know myopic universe i've built for myself you know so i didn't know that at the time you know and the lesson to tuan is like you should you should know that that this is what people are capable of and that you should try to surround yourself with people who do not have this binary view of the world wherein they can't exist and be important and you can't exist and be and be important at the same time thank you like people say that i tend to go for the serious and so like <laughs> like we definitely went there you know oh, I love this, it. And yeah, I mean, I love it too. Like we could also talk for another whole hour on just how funny and hilarious, you know, the book is too. But the most important thing that I just want to say to you is thank you. I'm, I'm so grateful. You know, I thought like when we talked, you know, a couple years ago, I was like, oh, this, like this guy, like he really knows how to write and, and like, you've done it again. So just thank you so much for the time. Thank you for the book. Thank you for this chapter. Just much appreciation. Oh, you're very welcome. I, it was my pleasure. When I heard from you, I was like, I have to talk to this guy because he gets me. But no, thank you. I'm honored to be here. You're very welcome, Mark. I want to thank Brian Broom once again for his book, for this chapter, and for taking the time to answer our questions at Article Club. There's a chance that he's going to be coming to our discussion next Sunday, too, which is very, very generous. But until then, thank you for listening, and thank you for being part of Article Club, and I hope you have a good week ahead.